Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense, common knowledge, or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do, but only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have two guests today. Uh, one is uh, James Salzman. He's the Donald Bren Distinguished Professor of Environmental Law with joint appointments at the UCLA School of Law and the UCSB Bren School of the Environment. Uh, he's the author of Drinking Water, a History. Uh, then I also have uh, Michael Heller. He's the Lawrence A. Ween Professor of Real Estate Law at Columbia, School, Columbia Law School. He's the author of The Gridlock Economy, How Too Much Ownership Wrecks Markets, Stops Innovation, and Costs Lives. And uh, they're uh, collaborating, looks, on the, looks like in this new book called Mind, How the Hidden Ro- uh, Rules of Ownership Control Our Lives, coming out uh, March 2nd through Doubleday. So, Mike and James, thanks for coming. Absolutely. Pleasure to be here. Yeah. Well, uh, before we get into this, this new book, um, can you each give me a little bit of background on yourselves and uh, what, what your interests have been leading up to this new book? Uh, sure. So I, I'm an environmental law professor, a tree hugger, if, if you will, and um, been teaching property for a number of years. And when I was sort of the drinking water book was just it was it was a lot of fun to write a popular book about drinking water. And I was looking for a second book, popular book to write. And a friend of mine said, it's funny that there's never been a Freakonomics book about property theory. Because Freakonomics really is just microeconomics with some, with some very, very clever and arresting stories. And I realized you're right. You know, the, no one's written a book, popular book, focusing on ownership. And I, I knew Michael personally by reputation. He's one of the world's leading authorities on property. And so I said, if I'm going to do this, I, I got to do it with Michael. So this is Michael. Uh, that's a very nice uh, lead in, Jim. Thank you. It's been so much fun working with Jim. Uh, I've been teaching uh, property uh, ownership for uh, 25 years. And what I've always loved about teaching is, is having students see that just a few very simple rules uh, drive a very com- very complex world. Uh, so when Jim and I started thinking about this book together, we realized that the same was that we, that we could actually make that uh, visible to a much wider range of people. So what this, the genesis of this book was seeing how we could uh, make clear uh, just how simple the rules of ownership are that actually drive everything in our daily lives so that's the goal for this book okay did you guys fight over who's going to be on the cover first as the first author and the name and all that i'm just just kidding having a last name that starts with s i've always just said we'll just go alphabetical i got you that's the rule in our world pretty much okay tell me what so what are the uh i don't know what's to be known about ownership of things and property what's seems like a pretty straightforward thing but i'm sure it's not so what you know what are some major things about it yeah, you're right. We think that, and and we're wrong. So, I mean, as as Michael said, ownership is shaping every day of our lives, almost every minute. I mean, these are the rules that say who gets what and why. These are the rules that determine everyday life, whether you're standing at the front of the line or the back. It's where you live, where you drive. These determine what we can watch and listen to. Hundreds of time every day. We don't even think about it, but we're encountering the rules that are going to determine who gets who gets these things first? And it's true all over the world. So one of the things I think is is, is pretty amazing is that in every culture around the globe, mine is one of the first words that babies speak. It's hardwired. You go to a playground, all you hear 
is mine, 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 right? And we assume, as you said, that ownership is natural, it's obvious, it's simple, but that's just not true. So let's go back to the playground for a second. Uh, there's a fight that breaks out, okay? One kid screams, this shovel's mine. I had it first. The other one says, no, 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 I'm holding it. It's mine. What we hear is a fight of mine versus mine, but that's not really what's happening. What's happening is it's a storytelling battle. And each kid is making a different claim. One is saying, I had it first, first come, first served. Second one is saying, possession is nine-tenths of the law. And one of the key messages of this book is that remarkably, there are only six stories, only six claims to ownership that we use to claim everything. And it's not just kids. Businesses and governments do the same thing. So what are the six claims? Let me take that. So Jim already told you two of them, and they, they come up, you know, all the time on the playground. I had it first. It's mine because I'm holding on. It's mine because I'm holding on to it is the second. That's possession. Um, the third is it's mine because it comes from my body. So, uh, so uh, if you want to sell a kidney, can you sell it or not? Uh, that goes to the third claim of self-ownership. Uh, the fourth one is uh, you reap what you sow. It's mine because I worked for it. That goes to the question. So, for example, can 23andMe claim your genetic data because they work to assemble it? So one is first in time. Two is possession. Three is comes from your body. Four is labor. Five is one that people don't know as well, but it's really a very foundational one, is what we call attachment. Mine because it's attached to something mine. Uh, so that one is, for example, can you can you fly a drone over somebody else's backyard? Is the airspace above the backyard attached uh, to their home? And the last one is uh, family. So a lot of ownership moves around on birth and death, marriage and divorce. So it's mine because I'm in the family. And those six claims, first, possession, self-ownership, labor, attachment, and family, uh, those are the only claims that are available for everything in the world, for every resource, whether it's a shovel in a playground or whether we're talking about climate change or wealth inequality. I've been thinking a little bit about platforms like Google, you know, in their terms of service, um, you know, Facebook, Instagram, et cetera. Uh, from what I can see, no one has time to read these things, especially if it's spur of the moment. You need to use an app and it's been updated. Um, and ownership of platforms, what I'm seeing recently is like incredibly powerful because they set the rules, they change the rules, they amalgamate a huge amount of users, and then they can decide who to, you know, keep or kick off or who to amplify. So how do you guys see the intersection of ownership and the six facets of it with platforms? So Michael told you the six rules, but there's an important reverse message that the book talks about also, which is much of what we know about those rules are wrong, right? So possession is nine-tenths of the law. Online possession is one-tenth of the law. So the example you gave of online, so when you go to the Amazon website uh, and click on the, you know, buy now, you know, the, the, the book or whatever, maybe, maybe our book, hopefully, it goes into a shopping cart and most people, polls have shown, think that you assume this is just no different than having a physical copy of the book, but that's not right. It turns out, and you were talking about these, uh, these licensing agreements and such, for an ebook, that's what I'm talking about now, you don't own it. Amazon can take it right out of your Kindle account if they want to. They've done that. Google can brick a, a home device that you've got. They've done that. You think you own it, but you don't. One of the surprising things about online platforms is that the, there's a gap, and it's an increasing gap, between what you feel that you own and what you actually own. What you actually own today in the online world is much less and very different from what people believe they own. And what, what that point goes to is that ownership itself is a technology. Listening to your podcast and looking at you know, older ones, you have such an interesting range of people focused on different aspects of technology. 
maybe what's a little unusual about us on your podcast is that uh, we also focus on technology, but it's a different kind of technology. We're not talking, we're not ourselves doing work with CRISPR, but what we're doing is the ownership work, the ownership technology that shapes whether or not you get access to the products of CRISPR. Okay. So medical treatments, I mean, all this, well, I guess, I guess what you're saying and what I'm seeing is there's a whole complex chain of, it's not just simple ownership and access. It's a, Again, there's a lot of interplay. So a new medication or let, let's take, you know, the COVID vaccines. Um, access is totally unequal. The makers of it and the distributors of the vaccines, for instance, are prioritizing certain groups. And there's rights to get the vaccine, rights not to get the vaccine. Uh, again, the different companies that own it, the distribution. So I know it's just a complicated picture. What When you look at these types of scenarios, like what, what do you see that others don't in terms of the dynamics of, of ownership and usage? Well, it's a lot less complicated when you look at it through the prism of ownership. So ownership of COVID vaccines is actually no different from things that people are very much familiar with. So you're familiar with going to the deli and ordering um, a sandwich, right? It's first in line, step on up. And that's often the way we allocate uh, scarce resources, first in line, step on up. Uh, That's not what we're doing with the COVID vaccine. There are increasingly uh, back doors and uh, side doors uh, to get into access to the vaccine. Uh, and that's an example of what we call in the book, uh, first come last served. It's not true. It's not true just for the vaccine. It's true across the economy that we're seeing, um, more and more ways that the traditional, uh, way that people get ownership, in this case, vaccines from being first is being switched by people who have control over that resource, uh, to something that looks very different, which is first come last served. So when you see it through that prism, you see, uh, I think it makes, uh, visible uh, some of the uh, inequality that is uh, creeping into everyday uh, life as more and more things across our everyday world move from first come first served to first come last served. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click on support us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. And let me build on what Michael was saying, because there's another important point that comes out if you look at the COVID example, and that is that deciding ownership means deciding our fundamental values, right? There is no natural correct answer for who should get the vaccine first. Should it go to the most vulnerable, uh, the highest bidder, biggest contributor to the economy? Any of those decisions is necessarily going to favor one value over another. How do we decide? Gets back to what we talked about originally. It comes down to a storytelling battle. Unions are arguing that their frontline health workers should be given priority. If we care about the vulnerable, prisoners perhaps should get should get frontline priority and they should be ahead of the line. There are stories now that the wealthy are saying, look, let the market decide who gets the front of the line. It's not clear that any of these is naturally correct. In fact, one of the points of our book is it's it's not the case that one is naturally correct. Ultimately, whether we like it or not, if we're going to decide who gets what, if we're going to allocate a scarce valuable resource, 
we have to come down to choosing a story and the stories are out there for us to for us to choose how do you establish fairness then is uh i mean out of these six basic underlying principles of you know ownership and access i don't know what are like the prevailing theories uh first come to first served uh most needy first served i mean what what do you see takes precedence what's working that's a great question, Richard. And part of our goal with this book is to make visible that that's the debate that we should be having. We don't usually get to even have that debate what, about who should get the vaccine or whether you know Facebook can uh, own your online clickstream. We don't get to that debate because uh, someone tells us the answer is first come, first serve, or the answer is I'm holding on to the vaccine, so it's mine. And what we were hoping to do with this is to show you that when someone tells you the rule is going to be first come, first serve, that's a very powerful claim. But you always have the possibility of responding with your own ownership story. Well, maybe first come, first serve, but it's mine because I worked for it or it's mine because it's attached to something mine. So part of our goal is to make visible that who gets the vaccine isn't a force of nature, that it is a choice, and that we think people should be having that debate. We're not the people who can tell you. Uh, what the right answer is for who should get the vaccine first. You can have on medical ethicists on your show who maybe have some more insight as to that, but we want that debate to be happening. That's our goal. The other thing, Richard, I think that's important to, to highlight is that by focusing on ownership, you have to focus on the owner, right? And the owner mm -hmm. is going to choose the rule that maximizes what they care most about. So let's take a totally unrelated example. Okay, let's talk about um, the fast lane on a highway. Right. So it turns out that in a lot of cities that have heavy rush hours, you've got this uh, this so-called HOV lane. And what's interesting is different cities use different criteria for who gets access to it. It used to be first come, first serve. If you get in the fast lane first, you can stay in it as long as you want. No more. Right. So in some cities, if you're driving a hybrid or an electric car. Right. So their goal is to sort of help with air pollution, promote renewable renewable transport. Uh, in some cities, if you carpool with three or four more people, you get in. That's rewarding some behavior. And in some cities with congestion pricing, you pay. And that's rewarding basically wealth, saying if it's important to you to get there earlier, you can pay for it. The key point in all of those examples, and our book is full of those, is that the owner has to decide which values are the most important. And then they use the, the allocation strategy to achieve that. At what point, though, do we cross into uh, a public utility or a public good and the owners of a given platform or vaccine or whatever it may be there, you know, the way they would do it, the way they would distribute it or allow access uh, is, I guess, is taken over by, uh, you know, government or by uh, larger needs. Well, that's that's right. And that's that's a challenge we always have uh, whenever any new uh, science or technology or medicine or vaccine comes along, which is to decide which uh, what we call allocation mechanism, which allocation tool uh, decides it. So you can decide it based, I mean, one version is you could have a lottery. You could do it on chance. You can do it based on an auction. Uh, you can do it based on first come, first served. And the question you're asking specifically is, uh, should this be a choice that uh, happens through the market? Or should it be a choice that's uh, where it's individuals uh, you know, bid for the resource? Or is it a choice that's, as you said, a public good, where you have a democratic process, uh, a public process uh, for deciding priorities? Both of those have pros and both of those have cons. Uh, but what's important is to notice that no matter whether it's public or private, you still have to make a choice about uh, what is the value that you place uh, the highest. And that ends up for the COVID vaccine being a matter of uh, life or death.
uh, whether we choose one group or the other. Yeah, I didn't realize it's such a big topic without looking at it first, because it, I mean, essentially social engineering is the is the result of thinking about these questions of who gets what, when, and how. So it's, it's got like huge implications. I mean, what's the zeitgeist in terms of um, allocation of resources right now? I know it depends on the thing, but. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You said it exactly right, Richard, which is that uh, ownership is at its root about social engineering. And part of what we want people to realize as you as you listen to this podcast or as you read the book is that ownership works and it works very much like the remote control on your television, except that instead of, you know, which channel you get to, what show you're going to watch, the way ownership works is that somebody else, uh, usually sometimes a government, often a business, uh, it might be a parent if it's in the playground, but somebody else is choosing an ownership rule, whether it's first or labor or attachment or self-ownership. Someone else is choosing a rule that is steering you to do what they want. So one other way to talk about social engineering is um, is as a remote control. And we see ownership uh, very much as the remote control for your life. I mean, we want people to have the tools to be able to fight back when someone tells you this is the only way it can be. And the answer is, well, maybe, but there's another ownership story available uh, that, that we also should be thinking about. And another aspect of the remote control is we can use it to solve some of our biggest problems. I mean, sometimes more ownership is actually a solution. So, you know, fisheries. You, you know the, the, the show, The Deadliest Catch? Yeah, I've seen it. Yeah, so this is a reality TV show. Basically, um, these are these uh, Alaskan king crab boats that go into the Bering Sea, and it's 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 incredibly dangerous. Um, when the, fo- the, the show first started in the early 2000s, it was more dangerous to be a crew on one of those boats than to be on foot patrol in Iraq. Well, it turns out the reason for that is ownership. The way that the fishery worked was first come, first serve. So basically, the season starts, and when the quota for that season, the total number of crabs that can be caught is reached, the season closes. And so what it led to was a sort of Mad Max demolition derby on the high seas where boats went out as soon as they could. Once the season started, fish as madly as they could, as wildly as they could, as quickly as they could, even if the weather was terrible. Because if they stayed in port, the quota would be taken by other, by other ships. Oh, okay. So, so what happened? So uh, this, uh, this idea actually came out of Iceland, and then Australia, New Zealand, and finally Alaska got hold of it, and they said, wait a minute, we can create a new kind of property, and they're called catch shares, and basically a catch share is an allocation of that year's catch, so it could be you're you're, you're allocated one ton of king crab for this season, and uh, what, what it means is you can hold on to it, you can use it if you want the crab, you can sell it to someone else, and so you're the fishing vessel, when the weather's terrible, you can stay in port, when the price of crab is low on the market, you can stay in port. Almost overnight, this ownership engineering made profits rise and deaths fall. Uh, and now this is the basis for sustainable fisheries management all over the world. And it's all about ownership engineering. Well, I've heard there's lots of problems with it, too. I mean, uh, the larger concerns buying up catch shares of smaller ones. So it's a lot less players in the market. And Absolutely. some of the smaller fishermen are, you know, they can't really catch much at all. And they, you know, <laughs> there's good and bad about it. But uh, I've seen documentaries where there's quite a bit of bad, too. No, you're right. You, you're, you're, you're absolutely right. There is no, you know, there's not going to be a sort of a silver bullet. So some of the questions come up, and this happens all the time when you're talking about ownership. How do you allocate this new resource? Right. So you've created this thing called catch shares, which is a share of that season's catch. Do you auction it off? Do you give it to the boats that, that caught that amount last year? Do you give it to a community? 
and let the community allocate it. And if you give it to the to the the, the owner of the vessel, they can sell it. But what happens to the crew, right? So none of these. I, I don't I don't want to be heard saying that that more ownership is going to be the perfect solution. But it's a lot better than people dying on the high seas because they're racing to catch as many fish as possible. And that's what ownership. That's what the remote control of ownership was forcing them to do. Yeah, I think some of the problems is that the attention paid to the ownership and use dynamics is like, um, is punctuated. You know, there'll be attention, there'll be no attention for a while. You, you gave the example of fishing in Alaska. Then there's a flurry of attention. They put in this new system. Then attention, you know, I think everyone sounds like, oh, it's been solved and they forget about it. Then unfortunately people always are finding holes and cracks and ways to manipulate the, the system in place. And then it needs to be revisited to maybe revamped, you know, on an ongoing basis, but that doesn't seem to happen. And then you get That's stuck right. with these systems that maybe they're just just as bad but different. That's true for any technology, right? You you know, before you had uh, wooden fences, and then you have barbed wire fences, and you have better barbed wire fences. It's the absolute same thing with ownership. You have a new new technologies, uh, for example, for catching fisheries fish, and as and those technologies then become static, and then the problems and gamemanship around the technology becomes more visible. And then over time, the technology changes. So ownership is never fixed. One of our one of our really core points we want to get across is that ownership isn't a one and done choice. Uh, ownership is an evolving technology, just like any other technology. And each iteration of that technology has pros and cons, um, and they're always in flux. And when you begin to see, for example, in the fishery example, that you know too many fishing crews are put out of business. Uh, you can, uh, you're, you're not helpless in the face of that, that uh, you can still make new choices and different choices about how technology uh, should work for fishing or, and everything else. And I think a key point, and Richard, you've already, you've already identified this. We don't tend to think of ownership as a form of engineering, but it is. It absolutely is. Yeah. When you guys talked about the dynamics of ownership, I was thinking about like owning a house. Let's say I'm, I don't know, 75 years old and you know, now I'm on a fixed income um, and my taxes keep going up and up and up that's endangering my long-term ownership of the house because if i can't pay the property taxes then i'm not going to own the house too much longer or if you're in a you know you have an hoa that keeps going up or who, so it's funny it's i guess it's like when you own something you got to be careful because you may not things can happen that will endanger your ownership of it um so it's just, yeah. i don't know it's an, it's a complicated issue but and, and as you just said, so for the, for the, on the homeownership example, as people get older, people worry a lot about protecting their homes. And in response to exactly that worry, a rising number of baby boomers in their homes worried about how to stay, uh, the, the real estate market developed a new ownership technology. They something they created something called a reverse mortgage instead of a mortgage, where the bank pays you every month. Uh, what people usually use, use it to live on. And they, it's basically a draw against the equity of your house. It basically is drawing down the equity, but lets older people stay in their homes for the rest of their lives. So reverse mortgages is a new ownership technology that responded to an emerging ownership dilemma, which was older people uh, in their, uh, wanting to stay in their homes and, not, and losing them for exactly the reasons you said. Well, I mean, there's this, you know, I, I find myself and I'm sure a lot of people do in this new circumstance where, you know, these cloud platforms and just pay as you go and streaming is really attractive, but you're at the mercy of these platforms. They can cut you off. Like you said, they can brick your device. They can, you know, you really don't own anything. If I have a social media presence, you know, my accounts can be taken down. I own, I, I don't own any of that. And in a society where maybe most 
where much of what a person thinks they own is, you know, not controlled by them, that could be a big problem. This is very much the future of ownership. When we, when we think about, when we look into the crystal ball and think, where is ownership going? Uh, one of the most striking features about the change of ownership in the 21st century is the shift from the ownership of things, the, from a, a, a things that you can hold on to, to the ownership, to basically a stream of services. So when, when we talk about um, ownership going from nine-tenths of the law to one-tenth, uh, that's part of what we're talking about. We're moving into a world where you can stream anything and you may end up owning nothing. And that's a very different world. It's, very, it's a very different world where instead of flipping through the uh, you know, stained pages of a cookbook and having a sense of connection with your parents and what they cared about, if instead of that you basically you know, Google some ingredient or order something on Grubhub, your life is very different. Life is very different in a world where you lose connection with the sort of tangible stuff that made up our intimate lives. So your concern is a, is a very real one, and it's something to be take notice of, that we're changing to a world of ownership that's much more ephemeral, a world where maybe you sort of rent your engagement ring or you lease your dog. And I don't think that's necessarily a world that most of us uh, want to uh, back into just by accident. Yeah, I mean, even with transportation, there's, you know, there's all kinds of people talking about, oh, you won't need a car, you just use Uber or Lyft. It comes back again, actually, to this vaccine issue, which is kind of funny. Certain places want to mandate vaccines and they say, oh, it's not voluntary, but you can't go to the store. You can't do anything without it. That's a potential scenario. So all the things that you think you may own, you merely have access to. And if there's ways to engineer that so that you can't have access to anything um, if you don't do certain things that other platforms want you to do or government wants you to do. And that's very troubling. When you think about um, what it means to be a free society and a free people, place where freedom is born and dies is around ownership, around our access to resources. When governments want to destroy freedom, what they often do first is limit people's ability to uh, own to own things, and then they take away ownership. So there's nothing really more fundamental to freedom than what you can make yours. And it's uh, there's a real challenge to preserving our freedom in a world where everything is streamed and nothing is ours, where the Amazons and Facebooks and Googles can take back uh, what they, what you uh, download. It's a very different world when you basically own a string of ones and zeros. Uh, And to a certain extent, and this is, you know, something psychologists will know more about than I, I, but I've always thought, you know, we're we're hardwired to a degree to think about ownership in sort of visceral, tangible, physical terms. And I think that we're sort of thrown for a loop. Our our mental gyroscopes are, are sort of off. Uh, in in this new increasingly virtual digital world because of that. So I've seen some propaganda, I don't know if it's from like the World Economic Forum or who knows, but they talk about, oh, in the future you'll own nothing and it'll be so wonderful and you'll just pay for what you need at the moment and little micro bits. I mean, what's what's your thought about that future scenario? I mean, you're essentially you're saying it, but like what are some visions of the future that are likely and what are some visions of the future that you guys personally would, would want to see? Well, I, th- I think it's still playing out. I mean, I think I think actually we've moved past the sort of World Economic Forum high watermark of, you know, all you need is a service. You don't actually need, need the product itself. I mean, for for, ev- for all of these startups, you know, that are supposed to, they're supposed to provide the service for you, uh, you don't need to own it. Almost all of those as a percentage have failed, right? It turns out that people actually do want, in many cases, to own something, to actually hold on to something. So I think some of that uh, we've realized, at least from my perspective, has moved into the sci-fi, into the sci-fi world. 
and and there are some benefits potentially. I think what's what's interesting is that as an environmentalist, you know, the argument that's often made is, look, this is going to actually reduce reduce consumption, all right? Because you only need to use a car, access to a car when need when you need to use it. On the other hand, you know, if you don't have to buy something and instead you've got a smorgasbord that you can pick from, you may try to get some, you know something from uh, from every plate. Uh, and so it's actually it's not clear at all to me that overall consumption goes down even if you don't physically own each item. Richard, one, one, this, this, this last part of the conversation that we've been having about the future of ownership, this is a part that's actually so important to us. One of the things we decided to do around this book is to make uh, this part of our book available as a free download. So there's an ebook that's available on our book's website that is available for free that, that has this material, our, our thoughts on this material, on sort of how we can think as, as a free people about responding to a world where we're moving from promoting tangible things to, to streaming. It would be ironic if uh, if you put it out there and then you suddenly took it back from everybody to, to give them a quick lesson. No, we, we're not. I mean, our, our, we, I'm we, just teasing, teasing. Yeah, no, but our, our, our goal with this, you know, we, we've been, Jim and I have both been teaching this stuff for, for a long time. And what, we, what really motivates us to do this book is these are ideas we really care about a lot and we feel people should have access to. And this last piece in particular, we, we really want people to not feel constrained by dollar to, uh, to get access to this. But there would be poetic justice if we took it back. You're right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Have you guys thought about coming up with a, um, I mean, it is a really important concept. I'm realizing that as I talk to you guys, I, I don't know, just an idea that came to mind is if you guys made a board game based on the rules of ownership so that people could really get a feel for different models and how it affects people. Um, Absolutely. We've thought about that. And the first one we came up with was a game called Monopoly. But unfortunately, that one's already been done. So now, now we're trying to figure out uh, what's next. Risk also was taken. Actually, no, you know what you could do, though, is you could make maybe your own white-labeled version of Monopoly, but it has the six different uh, ownership methods baked into it. So you could play the game using one of the methods. And you might have to call it something different. You might not, or you might have to license it. I don't know. But that might be a really cool way to, to use that existing platform and popularity to so, uh, Absolutely. We're actually trying to think about, you know, it's like we a lot of what we try to think about is how to make complicated ideas like intelligible. And this is a piece of it is um, the, the ebook that we that we have online is a piece of it. And this interview is, is a piece of it. It's like, how do you how do you make things that seem like there's somebody else's problem and seem like they're too hard to get a hold of? Have yeah. people realize that, you know, this is actually something that each one of us individually uh, can have access to. Like you actually can be an active owner and reshape the world of ownership to serve you better, not just to be steered around by it. The other part of it, and this is speaking as a teacher, is that there's nothing better than when a student has an aha moment. And one of the aha moments for this book, I think for a lot of readers, is going to be learning that there are just these thick stories. And remember that scene in The Matrix when Neo sort of bends backwards and, and you know things start dissolving into ones and zeros? Mm-hmm. And he sort of realizes, actually, this is just ones and zeros. If you get comfortable and start to look for those thick stories, you'll see them everywhere. And a lot of conflicts will start to make a lot more sense because instead of hearing mine versus mine, you're being unreasonable, you're being a jerk, what you really hear is someone saying, I had it first versus I'm holding on to it or I worked for it. And the nature of the argument becomes a lot less irrational. You can start to figure out what the base of the conflict really is and perhaps uh, how to resolve it. Yeah, that was really interesting. I, I just remember that you know, I did hundreds of uh, cryptocurrency interviews, you know, a few years ago. Yeah. And with the cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin, they had proof of work. So in order to accumulate Bitcoin, 
for some of the miners. They had to put in this computer work and expend resources to get it. And then there were some that were proof of stake, meaning if you owned a certain amount of the cryptocurrency, then you were able to make decisions of governance and you know help the whole system run. So even there, it sounds like a bunch of these models are being tried out. It's like a, a testing bed for this kind of stuff. The first one, the mining, that that t- they traces back you know deep in American history. That's how the West was settled in the 1800s. Uh, the way you claimed ownership wasn't by buying it. It wasn't by being there first. It was by labor. The way you claimed ownership was by putting a certain amount of labor in over a certain amount of time. And that's how you got your homestead claim. So Bitcoin actually is following a very old uh, and one of the just very few models that we have for how you claim ownership. Do you think um, there's going to be a uh, a job description? I, I don't know what you'd call it, but um, a rights and ownership expert that uh, companies that set up ecosystems and platforms will hire I'm sure they have it already. I don't know what it's called, maybe an economist, but you know, is there is there a name for this position, this thinking? It seems to be incredibly important to bake into the strategy of you know any large concern. I think you know, yeah, and that's one of the reasons we wrote the book. This is ownership is diffused through a DIFF uh, through through a lot of different roles. So part of it will be the lawyer who negotiates the contract. Part of it will be the marketing to decide how do we want people to own these things? Do we want to lease it? Do we want to do we want to sell it? Um, part of it actually is going to be the, the the retailing experience, right? So one of the cool things we came across when we were writing the book is this notion called the endowment effect. I don't know if you've had podcasts about this or not, but it turns out there's no. a very strong universal psychological reaction that when you have something in your hands, it's worth more. It's worth more to you than if you just saw it before. So all these experiments, basically, where pe- there are these two groups. One group is is uh, is shown a coffee mug. The other group is given a coffee mug. And they're both, uh, both asked, how much is it worth? And the group with the mug always says it's more. How does this affect retailers and businesses? Well, they shape our shopping experience. So we basically get used to it. The Apple store, take all the time you want, ma'am, you know, sir, to, to play with the iPad. So it starts to feel like your iPad. And as that happens, the value actually starts to go up uh, in, your own, in your own mind. We call this ownership engineering, and it isn't a position that exists yet in companies. It's not something that business schools teach uh, people how to do. And it's not something that the company lawyers uh, know is available. Uh, so part of what we are trying to, or hoping, is that the notion of ownership engineering, uh, both from the business side, but also from the consumer side, uh, becomes something that's uh, available for increasing our enjoyment of the stuff that we do buy, uh, making it more valuable, and having consumers understand better exactly what it is that they're, that they're experiencing when they're going into, say, an Apple store. Yeah, what, what are the dynamics of people's usage of a free service versus a paid one? Because a free one, I'm sure that, you know, they can come to depend on it just as much as a paid one and a company that provides a free service. Let's say like Google Maps, you know, mm-hmm. it's now free. But what do you notice about the rules surrounding free stuff versus paid stuff? Well, the, the way I the way I sort of think about it is, is, is a bit differently, which is how companies use the strategy uh, of, of paid versus free to grow their own products. So for example, ever uh, wonder about HBO and password sharing? I mean, okay. every year we ask our students, how many use someone else's HBO password? About two thirds of the hands in the room go up. And then we say, do you know someone <laughs> who uses them? And every hand goes up. These are law students, right? This, this is not sort of legal-ish. This is illegal, right? They're using someone mm-hmm. else's password. The thing that's fascinating is HBO not only knows this is happening, and could stop it if they wanted to, but that they don't. 
And the, uh, the former CEO, Richard Pepler uh, of HBO was very clear about this. He said, we want to create video addicts. That's the term he used. And the idea was that if we basically turn a blind eye and let what some people pay for become a free product for others, it's going to grow the brand. They know what they're doing is not exactly kosher. Uh, and in time, the hope is that they will become paying subscribers uh, as well. Another point, so, I guess, I'm sorry, Richard. So another point on the free is Google doesn't do it out of beneficence. They don't give you Google Maps. They do it because uh, it's very profitable for them. And that's true for many of the so-called free services on the internet. As you know, they, uh, when, you, when it's free, basically you're, you're the product, uh, not, the, not the Google Maps. They are monetizing your use of Google Maps through tracking your click streams. And that's one of the most important uh, online issues today is who owns that click stream. That click stream itself is extraordinarily valuable. It's worth hundreds of billions of dollars each individual person's click stream, you, your click stream, Richard, is worth over $100 per year to, to Facebook. So it's not really free. It's really a disguised form of, um, disguised form of ownership. Oh, okay. I mean, if I use a free service so far, I don't really uh, know how to harness my click stream data. I haven't been told at all that it really has value. Um, I don't even know how I get the value out of it. And it's being used already. It's you know, I don't know whose asset it is, Facebook or mine, let's say, but they're already using it and profiting from it. And that's I don't because that's because they're using that's because they actually Facebook in particular is extremely skilled uh, at what we're calling ownership design. It's no accident that they're using it. And it's no accident that you don't know uh, what the value is of your clickstream. They one of the strategies for extracting value from the Internet today is to assert ownership before the law clarifies it. People always assume that there must be a law on this, but often there isn't. Uh, if we know going to mine asteroids on uh, asteroids in outer space, who owns them? There's no law. And for your clickstream, there's no law. So what Facebook does is says, uh, your clickstream is ours. It's ours because it's attached to our app. Um, so they make a powerful claim of ownership and ownership story. And people don't know that they can fight back. Individually, it's hard to. You can opt out of some of these uh, some of the tracking, uh, but collectively, uh, we uh, actually have an extremely valuable asset, uh, our intimate lives, that is being scooped up, vacuumed up by Facebooks and Googles and so on. And we have the opportunity right now, today, like this is a current live issue, who owns your data? And there's no reason why it shouldn't be you. In, in, in Europe, in fact, that's what they've done. Oh, what have they done? Michael, you want to go into that? So in Europe, they have a different position. They've, the starting position is uh, the clickstream is yours. And if, if somebody else is going to monetize it, they have to, they have to come to you and you can, uh, you can opt out of it. They haven't gone all the way. Their focus is more on privacy, uh, but we, could, I could, we can easily imagine one of our jobs as ownership engineers is to actually design new systems, uh, which go beyond the uh, European system, actually the, also the new California system, and create mechanisms by which we flip the switch. Instead of it being, uh, they can use it unless you, say, unless you opt out, the, we could have the switch be they can't use it unless they pay you. Same is true for your genetic data. Right now, 23andMe is uh, the reason that it's so cheap to get your genetic data, um, your genetic heritage uh, uh, decoded by 23andMe and Ancestry.com is that uh, you're not really, their, their main client isn't you sending in your swab of spit. Their main client are the pharmaceutical companies that are buying access to your data. They sell you, they basically give away the analysis of your ancestry in order for them to collect your information to sell to uh, drug companies and insurance companies. So it's a kind so, of I mean, 
this is very worrisome because like, uh, you know, I'll give you another example. So I'm in my, I'm using my smartphone and I want to use an app and all of a sudden it pops up and says, Oh, uh, please say yes to the terms and conditions. I don't know if they've been changed. The document can be 30 pages long full of legalese. I'm not going to read it. And if I need to use something in the spur of the moment, I just say yes, because I just have to use it. And that's, it's very, uh, I don't know what you call it. Sneaky. It's just disingenuous. I mean, the whole thing. And, and, uh, I just see this happening all the time in my own life and other people's lives. And it's just, you know, or what Facebook or Twitter, whoever does with your data or 23 and me, I mean, it's, I don't know. I don't even know what to say about it, but what are your guys' thoughts on all these? Well, the first thing is to notice that notice that it's happening. It's not just you who don't read those terms of service. No one does. I've never read them. They're impossible to read and they're designed to be impossible to read. Uh, It's through those clicks that you're creating a, a new world of ownership. And it's a world of ownership in which individuals like you and like me have uh, very, very little, uh, have very, very little control. Uh, so the first step to taking back some of that control is to noticing that it's to notice uh, what's being done, that we're sort of through that invisible, through that sort of painless click, uh, you're giving away uh, much of what you previously would have owned in a, in a more physical, tangible world. Now, that's not something that you can fight individually very effectively, but as people begin to realize enormous amount of control, of freedom, of autonomy that we're giving up in exchange for the direction app or whatever it is, uh, the more it becomes um, aggregated up to a political level where it does become something where we can be effective, where uh, activism at the political level really can begin to make a difference on what are the basic rules of ownership for our online lives. Michael's exactly right. I mean, this is ownership of citizenship. What do you mean? Oh, say more about that. Ownership of citizenship. What do you well, mean? It's, it's exactly what Michael's saying, which is that individually, you know, the, the do you agree? It comes off my iPhone. I, I have no leverage, right? But if I understand what's going on and I can raise this with like-minded people and eventually with politicians, then those companies are going to take notice. If each of us basically says, "Oh, ownership is given," there's nothing we can do about it. There's not another story to say no. You know, it's not yours because you because of labor. It's mine because of self-ownership. We can push back, not as individuals for some of these issues, but as citizens. So, for example, I'm I'm you're you know I'm talking to you from New York. In New York, I have no rights in my clickstream, pretty much. Jim is talking to you from California. California last year was one of the first states in America to pass a digital ownership law that actually gives Jim a lot more rights. And when he clicks, I agree. And this is happening right now at a state by state level. You know, where you are, Richard, maybe a, th- a third rule. Uh, and eventually, collectively, we could have a national rule on this, the same way there is in Europe. But the point is that it's not a given. That's not. Uh, the sort of background rule that of whatever Facebook or Google asserts uh, isn't necessarily the only rule that's available. And states and countries uh, and individuals can make a difference. I mean, what do you see as the future of ownership? I mean, you have to get the word out a lot more. People need to be aware, you know, made aware of the consequences of the types of schemes that they're being forced into, you know, in terms of conditions, et cetera. So. Well, Richard, your audience is a technology audience. It's a science audience. And that's the audience that we're very much hoping to reach, which is having people realize that ownership itself is one of the, te- one of the technologies as important as the technologies that they use in their work. Uh, your, um, and once people realize that it's a technology and it's one that's subject to our control, then we can begin to do something about it. You know, talking with you is, very, is exactly how we hope to get the word out. Or do you see a more dystopian future in terms of ownership? 
you know, this, this sounds a bit corny. I, I think it's up to us. There are always going to be owners of scarce resources who want to maximize something. It may be political power, it may be wealth. They're going to tell their story. And I think the main, for me, the main takeaway from, from our book is that there are other stories that are out there that may be equally valid, that may be more valid, but you've got to identify what the stories are. And if, you know, if we want to push for a more fair or more just uh, society, then we're going to have to choose counter story to push back. We've talked a lot today about clickstream. We could have talked about wealth inequality. We could have talked about climate change. Uh, these are all ownership stories. We don't think about these as ownership stories, but they are. Yeah. Well, very good. Uh, James, Michael, when, uh, tell me about the book. So it's March 2nd, it's coming out called Mine. That's right. March 2nd, it's coming out. Um, we have a website that's up and running, www.mindthebook.com. And we have a lot of free resources on there that are responsive to what we're talking about today. The, the ebook on um, digital ownership is, is one that we're, uh, we have on there for free, but we also have other resources as well. Yeah, we hope your readers buy the book. We hope your readers at least you know, download the ebook. We want to get the word out to people. Okay. Well, very good. Any last uh, questions that you want me to, to bring up or things you want to point out? No, I think you did a great job sort of identifying what the key, what the key points are. And, you, you, you know, when one focuses on ownership, the world looks different. I mean, it really, once you see it, you can't unsee it. It is like the Matrix. <laughs> and once you see it, you can change it. And that, that's really our, our message in a nutshell. True. Well, very good. James, Michael, thank you for coming. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much. Pleasure to be here. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.